We need to keep carbon in place where nature intended it. When you look at the ocean, it's the biggest carbon sink on the planet. We have to protect its health. Welcome to this COP26 special from Radio Davos, the podcast that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. In this case, climate. And we'll be asking, how can the ocean be our biggest ally in the fight against climate change? This matters. This is the defining issue of our generation. We rely on our oceans for our survival. In our continuing preparation for COP26, we'll look at why the ocean is on the agenda at the Climate Summit. And if you thought life as a marine biologist was all glamour and sunshine, we'll take you wading chest deep into the Colombian swamps, where a mangrove restoration project is helping local communities deal with the impacts of climate change and tackle the causes of it. When you extract that sample, obviously you will receive a lot of smells from the nature. Some of them are not nice, really strong smells that gives you the flavor of this carbon that is sequestered there. You can basically breathe the nature and the beauty of nature as well. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomer at the World Economic Forum and with a look at climate change, the ocean and COP26. You can't have a healthy planet without a healthy ocean. This is Radio Davos. The sound of a man swimming in the sea. But this is no normal beach holiday. This is Louis Pugh, and he's swimming in freezing water near the Greenland town of Ilulisat. Everything, when you look around you, there are icebergs and there's brash ice, and everything is telling you you shouldn't be getting in there. But when you're lowering yourself down that ladder into water which is zero degrees, and you're about to go for for the swim, it is it's very, very hard mentally and physically. Lewis isn't just an endurance swimmer, he's also UN patron of the oceans and he's been swimming in the Arctic since 2003 to shine a light on how global warming is already changing our world. When I did my first swim in the Arctic, um, the water, and I did this in the Norwegian Arctic, and it was right on the edge of the Arctic ice packs, the water was three degrees centigrade. I went back there 12 years later and the water was no longer three degrees centigrade, it was now 10 degrees centigrade. I mean, just think about that. It's gone from three degrees to 10 degrees centigrade in just 12 years. I'm swimming in the water. I'm in the ice and I've been in the ice for the last 18 years and I'm seeing the changes and I'm feeling it. And every single degree of water temperature, which goes up or goes down has a huge difference. I mean, if I swim in water, which is zero or I swim in water, which is three, that is an enormous difference. And so I think it's important to use storytelling to convey a message about what's happening to the planet. Data and science are absolutely crucial. But we're moved, not necessarily by data, but by human stories of what is happening and how this will be impacting all of us. You know, Greenland is so far away from everybody, except obviously the people in Greenland. And But to realize that, that what is happening there will impact every single person on this planet every future generation, the whole of the animal kingdom. That's an important but difficult message to convey. UN patron of the oceans, Lewis Pugh, now back on dry land and preparing to take his message to world leaders at the COP26 Climate Summit. And in Glasgow will also be Peter Thompson, the Fijian diplomat who is the United Nations Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Ocean. 
My colleague Emma Charlton spoke to him in August and she started by asking for his reaction to what was then the hot off the press IPCC report, the UN climate science report that showed devastating consequences coming down the line from climate change. This report is a code red for humanity and we're getting perilously close to that 1.5 degrees Celsius figure, which is the threshold that has been internationally agreed to and which we do not want to cross. From me, from an ocean point of view, looking at the report, it was confirmation of you know, what we've long been observing, but the report makes it undeniable now that, yes, these levels of uh, acidification, uh, warming, of deoxygenation, uh, of acidification are occurring at accelerating rates. So it's a huge alarm call for us all. Uh, you know, we unfortunately are placed in a position where, you know, we can see that there's going to be increasing marine heat waves that uh, occurred in the 20th century increasingly, but the 21st century is going to be a continuation of that. And uh, this, along with acidification, uh, really puts the survival of tropical coral reefs, uh, reefs in particular into jeopardy. Uh, we're already told by the IPCC that 70 to 90 percent of tropical coral will be gone at uh, the uh, 1.5 degrees threshold, and that pretty much all of it will be gone when we reach two degrees. And remember that we're currently heading to over three degrees global warming. Uh, and that uh, is, is a very dismal prospect for the health of the ocean, uh, because 20 to 30 percent of the ocean's biodiversity is tied up in coral reefs. And as I keep saying, my daily mantra, you can't have a healthy planet without a healthy ocean. So all of this, what does it mean for the ocean? What does it mean for us? Uh, I would sum it up in saying, you know, it just really ratchets up the responsibility of COP26 uh, to deliver us from this nightmare, because the delivery lies in, obviously, the lowering of those greenhouse gas emissions uh, in transformative ways when we get to Glasgow. And what, what specifically would you like to see COP26 do? Well, COP26, as I say, has a massive responsibility uh, for human security now. And the, this IPCC report makes that uh, abundantly clear. Nothing has changed in the sense that, you know, it's the big emitters who have to face up to the fact that they are uh, poisoning us all. They're the ones who have to take the lead on drastically cutting their emissions, you know, getting rid of coal-fired uh, power plants, etc. This is not a time for finger-pointing. We're all in this together. What we can see uh, in, from the ocean's perspective is that you know, everything is connected. It's one ocean. Uh, increase the atmospheric warmth because of our coal plants, and you're going to get melting Greenland ice sheets. And once that water gets into the ocean, it's got nowhere to go but up. There's only one ocean. Think of it as one bathtub. So what's flowing off the Greenland ice sheet is causing a rising sea level in an atoll republic like Kiribati or its neighbor, Tuvalu. This is all connected. And so, you know, if you're burning coal to get your electricity, you're contributing to the drowning of a, an age-old island culture. That sets it out very starkly. But some people I've seen comments after the IPCC report saying it's, you know, we've already gone too far. Is that your view or do you think it's still, the situation is still salvageable? 
No, of course you can't give up hope, and of course you never uh, stop acting for the better. You know, I say that as a grandfather, but that's just my vested interest in it. But obviously, we have ways by adopting clean technology of averting all this. It's true that the chemical changes in the ocean, such as acidification, are going to continue, and warming will continue, even if we did all the right things tomorrow. But you know, we're going to bend the curve by doing the right thing. We're going to bend the curve down to manageable levels. Whereas we keep going the way we're going, you're talking about exponential sea level rise. You're talking about, uh, as I said, over three degrees warming, and that's a world on fire. So uh, you know, it's ridiculous to say that oh, it's all gone too far. We can't do it. That's just suicidal talk. Uh, there's lots that we can do, and uh, it's a matter of bending the curve, not making the world perfect. So would you like to see coming out of COP26 specific pledges from those big emitters, from everyone, everyone working together? Yeah, well, look, that, that's the obvious one is, you know, lowering the anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. We want to come out of Glasgow knowing that something fundamental has changed in that regard. But uh, secondly, from an ocean point of view, um, we have long been knocking at the door of these climate negotiations. So you cannot consider uh, climate without considering ocean. I mean, the two are so inextricably connected that it's kind of uh, illogical uh, to exclude ocean considerations from the climate debate. So uh, what we want to see coming out of uh, Glasgow is a very strong indication that all branches of the UNFCCC process will be uh, including oceans in their work. They'll be reporting on that, that it'll be part of the global stock take and that the uh, so-called Substa negotiations, uh, there's an ocean climate dialogue which was instituted after the Madrid COP, that those uh, continue on a regular basis. So uh, from, that's the big ask from the ocean side. But there's a third element as well, uh, which is very important to all of our futures, which is that the climate finance needle moves in the direction of the sustainable blue economy. But at, at the moment, the ocean and the sustainable blue economy are uh, hugely underfunded when you compare it with what's going on, on uh, with terrestrial concerns. Uh, you know, ODA is something like, you know, 1% of ODA goes towards it. Uh, but the sustainable blue economy is our future. You know, that's where we're gonna get our future security of nutrition, healthy nutrition. That's where we're going to get our energy from, from offshore wind and tidal energy and so on. That's where, we're, through greening of shipping, we're going to knock off a huge amount of our global emissions, uh, getting away from the powering of our global shipping fleet by bunker fuel, filthy stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, the sustainable blue economy, just uh, along with medicines and uh, carbon storage, uh, just offers us so much, but we're, we're not investing in it. So that has to change after Glasgow as well. And where would you like to see that money coming from? Well, it has to come from uh, principally from those that have caused the problem, which is the industrial north. It has to come uh, from the funds that have been set up to work on uh, climate mitigation and adaptation, you know, the Green Climate Fund, the, the GEF and so on. But all of these funds, and there are many uh, of them around the world, have got to take on their share of the sustainable blue economy funding burden. And uh, again, it's very achievable. It's a matter of board decisions and away we go. 
And what sort of projects are in, in the blue economy that you'd like to see being funded? Well, I mentioned the greening of shipping. That's yeah. obviously a, a multi-trillion dollar exercise that we have to do over the next decade or so. You know, we're on the cusp of a change, just as we were from horses to uh, using motor cars. We're on that cusp of a change now from going from uh, green hydrogen-powered uh, shipping away from the old uh, bunker fuel shipping. Uh, so that needs huge financing. Sustainable aquaculture, truly sustainable aquaculture, you know, which doesn't rely on antibiotics and, uh, and is a, appropriate uh, types of aquaculture, including non-fed aquaculture, seaweed in particular. That's, every country can get into that, but that needs funding. Uh, and it's, we're not talking about massive uh, scale in the sense of corporations running this. This is something that, that smallholders, you know, women in villages and so on can be doing, but it has to be done at scale for them. And that needs uh, freeing up of funding to get to them quickly and easily. What are some of the other consequences of the ocean um, acidification and warming? The beginning of the um, Gulf Stream has already been noted. You know, that has big consequences for um, Northwest Europe. In the South Pacific, I come from Fiji, and in the South Pacific, we've got scientific studies now which show that uh, tuna is going to be moving away from the Southwest Pacific to the East Pacific for its spawning and down to the South. And that has huge consequences for us. You know, some of our countries, uh, Tuvalu, for example, you know, about 90% of foreign exchange comes from tuna. So you know, that's occurring because of uh, ocean warming and acidifying and so on, those changing conditions to which we're referring. These changes to ecosystems are being noticed all around the world. Life uh, essentially is in the ocean is uh, going to move slowly and is, is being observed as moving now away from the tropics uh, into more hospitable waters as the waters get warmer and warmer. And, um, you know, temperate climates might think, oh, good, we'll reap all those benefits. But, of course, their ecosystems are being disrupted by that. You know, where do the existing uh, uh, ecosystems, how do they handle themselves when they're getting this intrusion of uh, new species from uh, tropical areas? So, you know, there's disruption all over the place. Of course, changes are constant, but the, the worrying thing under the, this three-degree path that we're on is that it's all happening too fast, that ecosystems don't get a chance to adapt properly, which is why we've got to slow things down. So taking all that into account, what is your message to uh, policymakers as they head into COP26? Uh, well, whatever your ambition was prior to the IPCC report, uh, ramp it up as a result of uh, what is unequivocally stated therein by the best of our scientists on this subject. You know, uh, government leaders, policymakers, are supposed to make those decisions on the best of science available. This is the best of science available. So whatever your ambition was prior to this report, ramp it up and come to Glasgow with uh, much more ambitious plans than you had. We need to keep carbon in place when nature intended it. And when you look at the ocean, you know it's the uh, biggest carbon sink on the planet. We have to protect its health. Uh, when we talk about planting trees on land, that's fantastic. But remember that uh, mangrove forests are far more efficient in sequestering carbon than their terrestrial cousins. So protect, restore mangrove forests. We've done terrible things to them over the decades. 
uh, protect and restore them. Same can be said for seagrasses and kelp, wonderful reserves uh, of carbon sequestration to be protected and restored. Uh, so let's keep carbon where nature intended it, and the ocean can, is, is our biggest ally in that regard. So my message to everybody would be, you know, get involved. At the very least, get on your computer and see what the 10 targets of SDG 14 are. SDG 14 is our agreed, our universally agreed uh, measure to conserve and sustainably use the ocean's resources. So become familiar with it. And many of you are already doing work within that target, probably within that goal without realizing you're supporting one of the targets. You know, I refer to the people that are out there, uh, you know, picking up pollution off beaches. Uh, you know, that's uh, pollution is one of the aspects of SDG 14. Well, the people that are trying to uh, get sustainable fisheries in place, you know, again, that's a target of SDG 14. So there's so much that people can do. Uh, my message would be, you know, get involved, do the right thing. And uh, certainly you don't have to be an optimist, but you can be a pragmatist. Peter Thompson, United Nations Special Envoy for the Ocean, was speaking to Emma Charlton. Some jargon busting now for some of the terms that Peter used there. The UNFCCC is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's the global agreement that led to things like the Kyoto Protocol and later the Paris Agreement. The Substance Negotiations, that refers to the subsidiary body for scientific and technological advice. That's a body that advises the UNFCCC. ODA is an acronym that stands for foreign foreign aid. It can sometimes mean overseas development assistance or official development assistance. It's foreign aid from governments. The blue economy is the economy that comes from the ocean. And when Peter mentioned SDG 14, he was referring to the Sustainable Development Goal number 14, 14 of 17 goals that were set out by the United Nations to improve the state of the world by 2030. SDG 14 is this to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas and marine resources for sustainable development. This is Radio Davos, where we're continuing to look at climate change ahead of COP26. In these programmes, as well as hearing from people at the heart of climate negotiations and looking for solutions, we're also speaking to people in the real world to hear their experiences of climate change. This week, Mohammed Jinde, a young Syrian who is among the six million of people who fled Syria because of a war that some analysts say was sparked or inflamed by climate change. My name is Mohammed Jinde. I'm 20 years old activist from Syria. My activism focuses on refugees' rights of education. So climate change initially impacted the displacement of people inside Syria to the cities, which eventually led to a revolution and then led to a war. And this war created one of the biggest refugee crises since World One World War II. So climate change has been affecting me personally in the, the country where I come from for the past 10, 20 years. Now, as I've moved to Lebanon, as my work has moved to Lebanon, climate crisis has been affecting the communities where I work with, which is the Syrian refugees who reside in the Bekaa Valley, from the drought, from the, again, displacement of people because of the lack of agriculture, which is the main source of income for a lot of uh, people. And soon it will create another refugee crisis and the ones who will be impacted the most are the vulnerable communities, which is the refugee communities who are in vulnerable countries like Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey. Mohamed Jinde with his personal reflections on the impacts of climate change. 
You're listening to Radio Davos, where we're looking ahead to the COP26 Climate Summit, and this week we're focusing on the ocean. We've heard UN Ocean Envoy Peter Thompson say mangroves make a big impact because they suck so much carbon out of the air. To get a closer look at mangroves, we spoke to someone who's dedicated her career to marine ecosystems and mangrove forests in Latin America. Maria Claudia Diaz-Grenados is Blue Carbon Director at Conservation International, based in Colombia. One project her team is working on aims to conserve and restore 11,000 hectares of natural mangrove forests in Cispata, an area along Colombia's Caribbean coast. Mangrove swamps are beautiful, full of a wild diversity of birds and insects, so it must be lovely to get stuck into them, right? My colleague Alex Court asked Maria Claudia to describe what it was like. In cases you have to go by boat because there are no roads and then you use a canoe and then in the middle of the water you have to jump off the boat, swim a little bit, then reach to the coastal or the shoreline, and then start walking in the middle of the clay uh, with the water up to your chest, and then start opening your space through the roots and find a right spot to collect the sample. The sample is soil that has to be collected from the bottom. If you can go deeper than one meter, that is perfect because That's where you have more carbon. When you extract that sample, obviously you will receive a lot of smells from the nature. Some of them are not nice. In some cases, when I bring people to see those areas, I'm I'm amused of their faces because in some cases they don't want to be there. They believe that mangroves are so beautiful, lovely, everything is going to be fun and yet they will see a lot of very nice birds etc but when you are there uh, the work is uh, completely different but yes that's the way we we work and i love being there because there you can basically breathe the nature and the beauty of nature as well it's beauty which is also serving such an important purpose because mangroves are so powerful when it comes to combating climate change and sequestering carbon. What exactly is that role? Uh, Mangroves, they provide a very important habitat for plants, many animals around there, but they also provide a critical source of food security for communities, as well as fishery resources and income. They also act as a shield from natural disasters like hurricanes or tsunamis, etc. And they reduce the impact of sea level rise by building up coastlines as they grow and protect land from erosion. That is very important. But they also maintain coastal water quality by trapping sediment, nutrients and pollutants. Sediments can account for between 50 and 90% of the total carbon stock and the remainder store for long period of time are located in the wood, while in um, sea, sea grasses or salt marshes, about 95 to 99% of total carbon stocks are found in the sediments, in the soil itself. This is completely different from any terrestrial forest. And that's why when mangroves and blue carbon Uh, ecosystems are destroyed or degraded, the carbon stocks or stores that that took millennia to accumulate and are located in these uh, sediments, they are released in a matter of years, turning these important 
carbon sinks into a significant carbon source. In Colombia, what is driving mangrove destruction and, and how are you working to promote restoration and protection of mangrove sites? The majority of that deforestation is done by illegal actors, but also development projects built in cities or building highways. Those type of infrastructure projects are also threatening the coastal ecosystems in general, and mangroves are part of that. In some locations, mangroves may be also threatened by uh, the expansion of agricultural frontier, for example, and also cattle ranching, because they need more space for animals. And in, in, in the process of doing so, they basically are destroying mangrove forest. In Colombia, we have uh, one very good example of a project that is aimed at uh, conserving mangrove forest in one bay located in the Caribbean coast. And we are working very closely with co local communities to try to maintain the existing mangrove forest. And, and the way of doing so is working with them and, and allowing them a sustainable use of that forest. For example, when a channel is naturally blocked, they go there, they open the, open the channel, they allow the um, exchange between salty water and fresh water, and that's the way mangrove forest naturally regenerates. This is one of the activities we usually, usually do with local communities, and, and that activity has to be done at least three or four times a year because the forest is huge. How has your work in Cispata allowed the forest to be valued, not only for its benefits on the local communities, but also on climate at a global scale? We are giving an economic value to that service that the mangrove forest is having, which is carbon sequestration. With the uh, carbon market right now, we are only covering 50 to 60% of the financial needs of a project like this. And that's why we have to invent additional sources of um, revenues. For example, we are also creating biodiversity credits that we can also offer to the market and guarantee that a project like this is going to be maintained in a long term, which is, in our case, our end goal. We were able to sell credits in 20 US dollar per ton, which is more or less three times, three to four times more than a usual credit uh, from terrestrial forest is being sold. Let's say that I'm, I'm a corporation that's interested in buying carbon credits. And I'm, I have a particular interest in Colombia. Tell me, what is a carbon credit? What does it do for a company? And what does it do for the natural habitat? every company must act. So they are changing the normal way of producing goods and services, trying to convert those activities into a more carbon neutral processes, trying to avoid emissions as much as possible. But that process is obviously long. You cannot change everything from one day to the other. So the way companies can help changing these impacts right now while they are going to change their own activities is by paying or buying these credits 
and supporting this type of processes or projects in tropical areas. Companies, when they buy a credit, it means that they are compensating their emission by giving funds to a project that is sequestering or is combating climate change. And right now we want to start promoting private uh, companies to invest on high quality criteria projects in order to ensure that you will have impacts not only at environmental uh, level, but also at social and biodiversity level. What do you say then to skeptics who see carbon credits as a sort of get out of jail free card, a way for just companies to continue polluting and then just pay a relatively small sum towards a good project like this? We have to make a real change. One way of doing this is by supporting projects that are aimed at conserving or restoring forest. This is the the right moment to do so. And and this is one solution we have to be able to mitigate the climate change impact, but also to be able to provide people with adaptation solution to this changing environment. So I believe that helping projects like this is one way of um, be ready to these changes that we are living. It's not the only one, but it's one way of doing so if we can ensure that the funds are going to be distributed in the best way as possible. Maria Claudia Diaz-Granados of Conservation International, speaking to my colleague, Alex Court. Next week on Radio Davos, we'll be continuing the preparations for COP26, and we're looking at food. My colleague here is Amanda Russo, who's been putting this episode together. Amanda, climate change, food, where do the two come together? Why are we doing an episode on food? How we use the land, Robin, is now on the main program at COP26. It turns out one-third of all emissions are from agriculture, and that's about the same size as the global transportation industry. So this is a big deal. And we're going to drill down into a few elements of this climate buffet. We're going to talk restaurants, food going extinct, and how consumers like you and me can make small choices that have a big impact. Food going extinct sounds scary. You talked to someone called Dan Saladino. What did he have to tell you? Well, he talks about the benefits of diversity in our diet and how it's actually going to ensure we have enough food to feed everybody by 2050, all 10 billion of us. Here's a clip from Dan talking about one food that actually self-fertilizes. The plant is releasing sugars to feed the bacteria. And the reason why this is so significant is that we do not find in nature self-fertilizing cereal crops. That's one example of something that was saved over thousands of years by an indigenous community in an obscure village in Mexico, something that is being made almost extinct because of really high-yielding hybrid developed by very successful agricultural companies. And also, why should we care? And we should all care because that, that obscure maze from a village nobody has ever heard of could be part of our food future. Dan Saladino, who's a BBC global food journalist, he'll be our guest on next week's Radio Davos. Who else have we got on the program next week? Well, we got Michael Oshman from the Green Restaurants Association, and he has been working with restaurants over the past 30 years to help them go green so that way we can actually get more for less. I would say 99.9% of restaurants who could do things that actually not only would not be deleterious to their bottom line, but they'll come out ahead. If the restaurant industry just in the United States 
was its own country. It would be sitting at these climate conferences at anywhere from number 11 to 17. And that was Michael Oshman from the Green Restaurants Association. He'll also be on next week's Radio Davos, which is all about food. Thanks very much, Amanda. Robin, thanks. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. It was devised and structured by Alex Court with reporting by Anna Bruce Lockhart, Emma Charlton and Gemma Parks. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with that episode on climate change and food. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.